Dr. Katie Mack is a researcher in theoretical cosmology. She seeks to answer the big questions about the nature of the universe, fundamental physics, and whether Twitter is actually a time-sucking black hole. <laughs> Katie. So, it's November 2006. I've been a visiting graduate student at Cambridge University for about a month, and I'm about to give a cosmology group lunch seminar in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. I have a lot of reasons to be nervous. It's one of the first seminars I've ever given. I'm a graduate student who's only just arrived. The lecturers for the courses I'm sitting in on are sitting in the audience looking up at me expectantly. Um, I'm still holding out hope that it'll be okay though because among those in the audience is not Stephen Hawking, who usually attends these seminars. Um, and I'm just getting my laptop set up on the title slide thinking I'm home free when I hear beep, beep, beep. <laughs> so the talk is about primordial black holes. Stephen Hawking invented primordial black holes. They were his idea. At this point, I am beyond terrified, but there's no turning back. I'm introduced, I read out my title, and a loud mechanical voice comes from the audience. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody laughs. I stand there shocked, confused, and I think, well, okay, that's funny. I guess he's referring to my title, acknowledging that I'm talking about something he came up with. Um, I, shoot him a, I shoot a questioning look to the carer who's sitting there feeding him soup while everybody's eating their pizza, and she just looks back at me blankly. So I pause, I continue on, and before long, I'm going through some background material, and I hear, yes. And I look at Stephen Hawking and the carer again, and I have no idea, no idea what's going on. Um, they don't say anything. Um, so I carry on. I'm confused, more than a little embarrassed. Um, and I can't exactly ask Hawking to elaborate, because he speaks through a computer, and he can only manage to say about a word a minute at this point. Um, when I was a little kid, he had a little clicker that he held in his hand that he used to, to select words off a screen. And that was how I, you know, that's how he communicated, because he has this degenerative disease, and he's slowly losing the ability to move his body. And so at this point, um, when I'm giving this talk, he has, he's lost the use of everything except basically his face. So instead of using a clicker, he has a little sensor clipped to his glasses that looks at his cheek, and when he sort of twitches his cheek, it selects words as this sort of scroll bar is going down the screen. Um, and so he's basically speaking just by sort of twitching his, his face, and, and it takes a long time. Um, so you can't just say, oh, excuse me, can you repeat that or tell me what you're saying? Um, so I just have to go on. Um, so I go on with the talk, I explain my work, I answer questions from the other researchers. Um, every now and then I hear Hawking say, yes, or no, or maybe, or I don't know, or I don't think so. Um, and every time it happens, I, I pause and I look imploringly at the, uh, the carer who's just sitting there, um, and eventually I just move on, you know, I allow a respectful silence and, and just go. Um, and so the talk ends and the audience applauds politely and people file out and Hawking is wheeled away. Um, and I asked the organizer, you know, what, what was happening? What went on with that? Um, and so nonchalantly he explains it. He says, well, Hawking's cheek sensor malfunctions when he's eating and this is a lunch seminar. <laughs> and so there's, 
it, so there's this, he has this sort of list of commonly used phrases, like yes, no, maybe, I don't know, I don't think so. Um, and it just randomly selects them while he's eating. And so, and I had no idea, and it had nothing to do with me. Um, and apparently, this happens all the time, but nobody told me. And to this day, you know, I don't know if it was just an unfortunate oversight or some kind of academic hazing. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, in any case, it worked. You know, every other talk I've given has been easy compared to that. <laughs> and, and, you know, my nervousness around that seminar wasn't just that Hawking was a well-known physicist. It wasn't just that he invented primordial black holes. He was really a hero of mine. So um, I grew up in Los Angeles, and some of my earliest memories were reading about science and, and reading about the brief history of time and going to seminars at, at Caltech where Hawking would occasionally visit and because I lived about an hour away from there. Um, my mom used to take me to these public lectures, some of them by Stephen Hawking and other people, and they'd talk about space-time and, and warped gravitational fields, and, and I, just, I just loved that sort of thing. I, I, um, I loved the idea of thinking about black holes and the Big Bang and extra dimensions. Um, and so I, I would go to these talks, and the first time I ever spoke to Stephen Hawking, actually, I was about 14 years old, and I was at one of these talks um, that my mother took me to. My mom took me and a friend of mine uh, to hear Stephen Hawking talk about higher dimensional universes or something. And, um, and we, we went to the talk, and as we were leaving, we happened to be walking right where Stephen Hawking was kind of wheeling along. And um, so I was actually too nervous to talk to him. Um, so my friend Garov uh, went up to him and said, hey, my friend wants to say hi to you or something. Um, and so I, I sort of went up, and I was like, hi. Um, you know, you're my hero. I'm really interested in theoretical physics. You know, I enjoyed your talk. And, uh, and he said, thank you very much. Um, and that was, that was very nice. Now I know that it was probably really easy to say that because he had this, this sort of clicker thing. Um, but anyway, so by that time I already knew, I was you know, 14 years old, I already knew I wanted to be a cosmologist because that was what Stephen Hawking was and I wanted to do what he did. And I also knew I wanted to go to Caltech. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Caltech is the California Institute of Technology. It's a small, very selective uh, university focused on math, science, and engineering. It's kind of like MIT, but it's better. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and I happened I knew a lot about Caltech because my grandfather um, uh, spent time there during World War II. He was a meteorologist in the Navy, and he was sent to Caltech to study um, before heading off to sea. And later on, he had a successful career designing rockets to go up and measure the atmospheric something or other. Um, and he used to tell stories about these Caltech geniuses, and he would tell stories about how the Navy guys would challenge them to games of poker, thinking that you know these are just geeks; they don't know what they're doing. And and the Navy guys would always, you know, get completely, um, completely torn apart at the poker table because the, Cal the Caltech guys would count cards. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and my grandfather would tell me about these amazing pranks that Caltech students would do, all these really elaborate technical things. And, and Caltech advertised itself as the world's best playground for math and science. And I just thought, this is, this is great. This is exactly where I want to be. And so I eventually enrolled in Caltech. And it was a really intense place, but I, I really loved it. And I'd, I would run into Hawking sometimes on campus, because he would spend a month or two there every spring and give talks and hang out with Kip Thorne and um, all the other people who worked in his area. Um, and I even sat next to near him at a barbecue once, and that was really exciting. And um, 
you know, and I would I would go home from the holidays and I would tell my grandfather, you know, I'd, that I, I that uh, what I was doing at Caltech, and I'd tell him about my science, and he was kind of the only one in my family who could really get the science, and so it was always really fun to talk to him, and and um, he was always the really, you know, a really reserved and and humble man, but I I I thought he was I thought he was proud of me. I, I really looked up to him, and I did notice that. Um, that every time I saw him for a holiday or something, he would be wearing the Caltech tie that I gave him. Um, so after Caltech, I went on to, P to Princeton for my PhD. I ended up spending a year at Cambridge, which is where that seminar happened. Um, I sat in on some courses, I did some research there, and around the time of that seminar, I, had, um, I was given an office right underneath Stephen Hawking's office. And so this is really exciting, you know, because I, um, I, I was at Cambridge and Hawking was at Cambridge and he was right there, you know. Um, and, uh, and I was friends with his graduate assistant, so I would occasionally go to like dinners and things that he was at. Um, one time I went to a, a Christmas dinner where, where he was and I got to introduce myself to him and tell him a little bit about my research and get a picture taken and that was, that was really exciting. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of gotten to this place where I was, I was a cosmologist, you know, I was doing what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, later on, I went back to Cambridge as a postdoc um, to do more cosmology, and, and I would still sort of run into Hawking once in a while. And so, you know, so I was, I was there, you know, doing one of my top career dreams, and um, one of the top two anyway. So the other, the other one, um, well, during my last year, I applied to be an astronaut with NASA. I mean, really, who doesn't want to be an astronaut, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe you've seen the movie Gravity. I haven't yet. Don't tell me. Um, but it, but it, you know, it, it, I heard that there were applications going. It sounded like, oh, this will be awesome. I'll just, I'll just apply and see what happens. And, uh, and so I actually, I made the first cut, um, which was pretty exciting. Um, I, and um, I was still at Cambridge, and I was waiting to hear if I was going to get an interview um, when I heard that uh, Neil Armstrong had died. And this actually really affected me. Um, and it's not because Neil Armstrong was a particular hero of mine, especially, I, d I didn't know a whole lot about him. I knew that my grandfather knew him. Um, and my grandfather knew him because my grandfather had saved his life once. So I found out when I was a teenager that my grandfather had worked on the Apollo 11 mission as a meteorologist. Um, and his job in the, on this mission was to check the weather at the landing site. Okay, um, and he had access to some uh, like weather uh, equipment, satellites or whatever, and so he was making sure that they wouldn't fall into like a thunderstorm or something. Um, and before this, he had been working on some classified spy satellite as part of the Cold War. And so when it was time to check the landing site, he thought, oh, maybe I'll just go and check with those guys at the spy satellite and make sure that, you know, there's nothing going on. And so he goes over to, to this, his old workplace where they have this um, classified spy satellite. And um, one of his old colleagues comes by and, like, drags him into his office and says, you there's, there's a huge storm, right, where the astronauts are going to land. And this guy knew about the mission, but he couldn't, say, he couldn't tell anybody because it was all classified. And he could tell my granddad because my granddad was, had still a clearance for it, but he couldn't tell anybody else. And so my granddad then had to go and convince NASA um, to move the the landing site with only like 72 hours left before the landing. And he couldn't tell anybody why. 
He couldn't. He couldn't tell NASA what where he'd gotten the information. Um, they had. They, he couldn't show them the data. They had to just trust him. And luckily, he was a respected Navy man. He was a well-known scientist in the Navy. And so, so they they said, okay, look, we're gonna we're gonna move the landing site. But just so you know, we're going to send a plane to the original site. And if there's not a storm there, you're in big trouble. Um, so, so they did reroute the capsule. Um, and sure enough, uh, they, when they sent the plane, there was a massive screaming eagle thunderstorm at the original site. And it would have ripped the parachutes right off the capsule and killed everyone inside. So that's how close the Apollo 11 mission came to being completely wiped out. Um, and that's how my granddad saved it. The, the Apollo 11 capsule landed without incident um, because my grandfather was a conscientious scientist, basically. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it might be, you might think it's funny you never heard this story. It actually, he never became well known for it. Um, he was given a Navy Commendation Medal, but it wasn't until the 1990s when they finally declassified this secret satellite. So for all that time, um, he didn't tell anybody. I didn't know about it. Um, so, so he's, he, there, were, there are a couple of books that you can find now that mention him. Um, there was supposed to be a movie at some point that where he, he was going to have some character was going to play him um, in, in, in this movie about Apollo 11, but I don't think that ever happened. Um, he re retired from the Navy as a captain um, and went on to be a volunteer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and talk to visitors and kids about the ocean and life in the oceans and stuff like that because he had spent all those years as a Navy man so he you know had a connection to the sea. He never wrote a book. Um, he had I have some of his old lab notes lab notebooks they they mention Apollo 11 but only in passing I guess because it was all the really cool stuff was classified. Um, so you know he didn't he didn't become um, a public figure. Um, I before he died, I did manage to let him know that I was applying to be an astronaut, and he was, uh, he was very happy about that, and I, I really wanted him to be proud of me, and I think, I think that he was. It, although I didn't make uh, the final cut, but he died before he found that out. Um, but uh, I, you know, I'll probably apply again. Um, but then when, when Neil Armstrong died a little later, that's, it made me realize something about um, how we think of science heroes. You know, I think it's really important to have role models of famous people who are well known in the world and who can uh, do great things and be recognized for it and, and be inspirations to millions of people. Um, but a lot of science is done really quietly, you know, in the background by uh, passionate, hardworking people who, who don't get any fame or fortune, um, but just use science to make a real difference in the world. And, you know, um, Stephen Hawking was always an inspiration to me as a scientist. and. Neil, Neil Armstrong was a reminder of how far humanity can go, but to me and to the Apollo 11 astronauts, uh, my granddad was a true science hero.